since i guess we recorded one which always happens yeah it usually does life's um, inevitabilities yeah. yeah podcasts that post regularly you can't trust them you know yeah the content factory the assembly line of it you know i just don't know how to do it like you just have to force yourself at gunpoint to think of ideas for topics like every <laughs> week at, you know, potentially forever, unless you're like doing some glossy, high budgeted mini series or something. You're just like, yeah, let me do this shit forever. Yeah. Every week. I, I God bless you. God bless those of you who can do it. I know there's, yeah. there's some of you out there. I got a lot of respect for, it's not for me. It's not the life for me. Yeah. And you know, you know what they say about monetizing your hobbies, but we don't make money off of this <laughs> Yeah, no. We're in it for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. Not the not the gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just the just the glory. Yeah, just the passion. Like uh college sports, the only reason anyone plays them is for the, the passion, the love of the game. We're, we're just exploiting ourselves. Yeah. Unpaid. But, you know, it's the we're wrapping up the month of October here. Yeah, wrapping it up. How's your October been? Have you watched anything spooktacular? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess so. More than usual, I'm like not a spooktacular. <laughs> a little bit um, of a horror agnostic over here. Kind of, yeah. I just, I you know, the body genres, you know, pick two. You can't have all three, right? <laughs> Yeah. Or is the one I left off? <laughs> no, but um, I don't know. I just was always more like action, and also it was just like I'm gonna get scared of this. Yeah, then for sure. I just just never watched them, but I've been watching some this month. You know, some good ones, some bad ones. Uh, Halloween one and two, the Carpenter ones, mm-hmm. those are right. Halloween two, I feel like possibly better than the first one i think it's in the conversation damn you're real upset rolling your eyes over i don't know i don't know if i can go to that place but uh not to be such a traditionalist but i'm just like damn you know the the first one is just like such pure yeah fire 
I did give it just like, I think I gave that one like a five star rating. And then the second one, I was like, that's like a three and a half or a four. Mm-hmm. But some of those images, though, just yeah. burned in my brain. Bleeding from the eyes. More so than the first one. But yeah. That's um, how I feel when I watch movies. Just like Michael Myers bleeding. Yeah. A movie that did make me bleed from my eyes was both versions of Hills Have Eyes. Mm. yeah i've i've seen my favorite i've seen the first one and personally i wish i'd kept those eyes closed Uh, yeah as a crawl head i was like and also i feel like everyone says the remake is better than the first mm -hmm. one i feel like this is what i've heard shouted from the hills themselves um but let's just alexander asia came a long way to make crawl yeah. i'll just leave it at that Damn, he crawled a long way you're not running yeah. for the hills damn i feel yeah. like gene shallot over here just, just bringing the puns um but yeah you know my uh my one of my horror hot takes is that i think that wes craven is is kind of overrated uh, i've watched a few of his movies this month i watched vampire in brooklyn which not a fan really thought it needed the Ernest dickerson touch Eddie Murphy is underserved. I watched Serpent in the Rainbow, which very interesting premise about colonial colonialism and stuff, and but also kind of racist and like a movie that would have been much better served if they'd gotten my boy Oliver Stone in the director's chair. I did like the people under the stairs because it's just like fully really just leans into the wackiness. And I think that's sort of the thing for me with Wes Craven is like movies like people under the stairs and shocker where he's just like really got all these kind of crazy ideas, just really (laughs) going for broke with the writing, like highest in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that, but I feel like he's much more of a like ideas than images filmmaker. And he's really Wes Craven's an ideas guy. He's yeah. He's really working on that like meta, like genre commentary level. And sometimes isn't really like the most visually gifted filmmaker, not really thinking about, montage or cinematography in a way I find particularly engaging. So I feel like, you know, he's got some really good movies and like all respect to scream too. you know, I think that's kind of like the perfect embodiment of his sort of meta commentary. But when you like stack up the like lesser Wes Craven movies against like the lesser John Carpenter movies or lesser Toby Hooper movies, it's just, it just doesn't compare. Wes ain't got it. I'll tell you, what I'm not craving. Whoa. I'm trying to think. I mean, the only other real standouts for me were like Cure, mm. Yoshi Kurosawa. I've only seen one of his movies before, and it was the, the movie Sweet Home, which. Sweet Home, Alabama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the NES game for that movie yeah. was getting like rebooted for the PS1, and that ended up just becoming Resident Evil 1. Mm -hmm. But I think the movie has some interesting connections, though, to the Resident Evil franchise. It's about a documentary crew going to this kind of haunted castle. And the game is about this documentary crew, like, storing stuff in boxes. And you're going through this place and trying to survive and explore it. Um, Which, obviously, you know, there's a lot that pops up in the first game of you're just going through this place that you uh, are kind of scared of. And you're just finding stuff and putting it in a box and then getting it to somewhere else the whole game Mm -hmm. is just you find you just find stuff and you put it back where it's supposed to a lot of cleaning up in that game real resident evil it's a doing tasks yeah real 
bad house guests. They just made a huge mess. <laughs> but the seventh game does have like kind of a documentary or documentary and like parallel storyline as you go through, um, which is kind of a revisiting of the first game anyway. But also mm-hmm. in revisiting it, I feel like reveals some more of those layers of that first Sweet Home game. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. cure crazy movie, you know. The, yeah, the truly. shape of the credits at the end haunt me. <laughs> yeah, like that is I don't know. I feel like it's maybe even cliche at this point for people to be like, "Oh, I'm not scared by scary movies," but Kiyoshi Kurosawa, those are some scary movies. Yeah, like, that guy, you know, that Pulse, guy's got some oof, demons, ghosts, you know? ghosts in my computer. Couldn't lo- get online after I watched that one. But Cure is like, yeah super fucking terrifying honestly you know just like i don't know this sort of envisioning of basically like serial killing as this sort of contagious disease almost and like your body is just like compelled um to do something horrific and you sort of lose agency like um i don't know it's it's pretty interesting and yeah gets in your brain but i mean there are also a lot of interesting takes of i guess like the horror of mimetics i Mm. guess cure being one of them you know the ring another one totally yeah it's kind of uh, i don't know i feel like cure is is a little bit of like theory fiction almost like it's sort of about how horror as a genre kind of i don't know how it sort of spreads like it's it's this like sort of uh strange shifting organism i don't know i'm i'm just kind of babbling but uh but cure is good stuff it i i feel like um there are many american horror movies that sort of reach a point of like real existential horror for me in the way that a movie like that does um something that i've watched this month which i think is maybe the best horror movie that i watched this month which i think does sort of get to that level is john carpenter's prince of darkness um which is a hot off the presses yeah it's fresh yeah i just watched that yesterday um and i feel like i had heard people kind of talk about that one in conversation with in the mouth of madness which i really really liked they're both i feel like oh they're at this interesting point that i feel like in their sort of horror they kind of fuse like the psychological and the cosmic with a kind of like really material body horror a lot of bugs and, and nasty flesh stuff, but um, also very intellectual at the same time. And like Prince of Darkness is about these like scientists basically studying like this evil cosmic force that's unearthed and has been protected by the Catholic Church, which is literally like the physical embodiment of evil. And basically, I guess the Roman Catholic Church for like centuries has been hiding this secret that like. S- that like evil like satanic demonic energy is like not just like some kind of uh emotional force that like makes you sin or like is is something that's like rooted in human instinct it's like a real physical presence um and i don't know pretty crazy stuff there like i think that 
at least for me, one of the things that's really interesting about horror is just like how it sort of allows us to like look outside physical experience and sort of human experience and envision them in new ways. And um, so I don't know, like the ideas that are kind of presented in movies like Cure and Prince of Darkness about like the borders of human experience are fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're one of the genres I feel like that'll do that sometimes. It's like stories about vampires, which, you know, there are a couple, couple classics mm-hmm. I feel like, but you know, the vampire story is always about something. I mean, kind of like delimiting, the like human body in some ways with like regards to time and sustenance and stuff like that. Um, which like kind of the only other standout, I guess was one that you'd recommended, uh, the Catherine Bigelow masterpiece near dark. I don't know about a masterpiece, but, but it's pretty good. Yeah. 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 It's got a lot of vibes, uh, pretty gnarly movie. I feel Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like it was made for television in some regards. Like, in terms of the, like, quality or, like... I feel like premise and sometimes image. Mm, interesting. Yeah, no, I I mean, it, it, it is kind of, like, that has this very, like, I don't know, a very 80s quality to it. So I can sort of see that, I guess. But also, you know, I never really... Bill Paxton always kind of pissed me off for that movie. He's, I don't know, he's like a leading man where he's just, uh, he's just like a cornflake, you know? He's just a, a weedy. Yeah, fucking corn dog. Wholesome, blank American Bill Paxton. Yeah, but he's always in distress, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, I guess we kind of, uh, our, our check-in there kind of went tangential a little bit, but... We are talking a, a, a little bit about horror um, on this yeah. episode. Even though it's not a horror episode, we'll be talking about a few films that fall into the genre. But we are here today to talk about two filmmakers, a duo, mm-hmm. Henry Juiced and Ariel Schulman. Which... W- We've talked about some of their movies on on the podcast before with with movies like Nerve. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know that we've really talked about any of the other movies. Yeah, I think we've just talked about Nerve because I feel like that's a sort of hot box canonical text for us. Like, I don't know, it's, it's like the hyper pop of movies. That's just like Jeez. a very back before di- Spotify invented that term. Totally, it was nerve. You know, it's like digital, glossy, multi-screen experience, but also about phones, not just sort of engaging them formally. Um, and that's a movie that like came and went in terms of its release. And yeah, it got on some people's nerves. <laughs> I feel like uh, people didn't see it, or they were just like, "Oh, Emma Roberts, Dave Franco teen movie." You know, if it's a CW show, it's not my bag, whatever. Yeah. But we saw that in theaters together, yeah. and I think both of us were quite taken with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a real, real pop song. Goes in one ear, out the other. But it's real nice. I don't know. It reminds me of movies a little bit like Detective Pikachu, where it's just really just a pleasant pop song of a movie. 
Yeah, I mean, it is very like neon, gloss, shimmering, bisexual lighting, really aesthetic. And the the whole end credits are like different sort of like Snapchat filters and memes of the time. Like some of the credits I remember were like in the layout of the Life of Pablo cover generator. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Uh, which I feel like there's a lot of things about that movie that are just like in general like super dated now. Like there's that whole sequence. As with, as I think we talked about on the episode with Rob that was the last one we put out about yeah. how like pretty much any kind of screen life movie has like an instant timestamp on it. Totally, just totally. Just like yeah. interface design with memes with just how people flow through apps and stuff. Yeah, and I mean... Um... Nerve also pulls from like very much from influencer culture to, you know, there's that scene, the immortal scene where Emma Roberts is getting a Virginia Woolf themed tattoo while rapping along to Wu-Tang Clan's cream. And she's getting the tattoo from uh, Instagram meme theft legend, the fat Jew. Casey Neistat, who we'll talk a little bit more about, also yeah. is in Nerve. And I think there's somebody Wait. else. Wait, Fat Jewish is in that movie? Yeah, he's the tattoo artist. Okay, interesting. This will come up later when we... <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. It all I'm... comes together. I'm going to bring this up later. I got to take a note real quick. Okay, make a note. Um, I think there's like another Vine or Instagram person maybe in the movie i remember i feel like i remember us watching it and like you pointed out somebody to me and i wasn't like entirely sure of who they were but you i mean th- i'm sure there were plenty um, of like big viners who at the tail end of that app's life were trying to pivot mm-hmm. to acting and just about none of it yeah. really landed i mean king batch gets in a movie every once in a while right maybe he, it was him i think king it might have ba- been him it might be he's in a an upcoming gerard butler movie wow found that out when i went to the drive-in not long ago sort of related but also i feel like nerve was sort of one of the kind of first movies that i remember seeing um former white rapper now reformed pop punk star and actor machine gun kelly in Mm -hmm. um and he's gone on to have multiple collaborations with justin schulman um and he's also like I feel like the Netflix original actor um, because he was in Justin Schulman's Netflix original project power, which just came out a couple months ago, which we'll be talking about a little bit more later. Uh, He was also in the Motley Crue biopic, the dirt. He was in bird box. He was in the Hulu original (laughs) big time adolescence with Pete Davidson. And he was also in the King of Staten Island. Okay, Machine Gun Kelly stays winning 2019-2020 cinema. He is just getting cast like nobody's business. Roll after roll. And it's all because of nerve. When you pick a fight with Eminem and you just know Eminem will just not win. Yeah, you have to just like start another career entirely to one-up Eminem. Yeah, because You're just like, em- oh, you got a cameo in Funny People? Well, fuck you, motherfucker. I'm going to be in the next Judd Apatow movie, too. Yeah, which also, I mean, Eminem, another uh, rapper who started acting, and people are like, oh, he's a, he's actually, a, he's an artist, you know? Even mm-hmm. though there have been plenty of rappers that were in movies before 8 Mile, people are like, oh, this is, a, this is serious art right here. Totally. I feel like Machine Gun Kelly coming for Eminem once again, you know? Like there's only this town's only big enough for one white rapper. Yeah, he's trying to get, he's trying to get that egot. 
Mm-hmm. But the E in EGOT doesn't stand for Eminem. He wishes it did, but it's never going to happen. Um, but anyways, so Nerve was, I think, where both of us really, our interest was piqued by Juiced and Shulman. Sorry, I'm just thinking <laughs> it's about okay. EGOT and like Machine Gun Kelly's and E-Boy. <laughs> this is not, this is, the this first, is not, the is first this something? The first E-Boy with an EGOT. Wow, that sounds like a Machine Gun Kelly lyric. I'm an E-Boy with an EGOT. E-Boy. In the whip with my E-Thought. Damn. Woo. Bars. Get me in the studio with Travis Barker and MGK right now. Yeah, I need need the Travis Barker track. Tracking the drums on this. Yeah. But yeah, both of us were pretty pretty into this movie hype off nerve mm-hmm. feeling the nerve you know emma Which, roberts is a very interesting actress to me she's in our beloved movie the hunt which we've discussed before mm-hmm. um she's been playing a teen for like i feel like fucking 20 years now almost yeah. like it's kind of incredible but it's funny the movie's like weird like phone moralism i feel like it kind of has some of those mm-hmm. like reaganite horror movie morals when it comes to like phone usage and like teens being addicted to their phones, because Emma Roberts is his main character in this movie about people who go crazy over this like app that gamifies viewership mm-hmm. and, and makes gamifies. you do crazy things. Yeah, exactly. And and all of her friends either die or just look like idiots because they're going so cuckoo over the endorphin rush. Of someone hitting like you know fifteen minutes of fame, yeah. But then she is so just like you know common sense kind of anti phone, very old fashioned. Mm-hmm. And then you know she ends up winning the game. I feel like there's yeah. a parallel between that and like the ways that like some conservative era slasher movies moralize about teenagers and they're like sex life or their drinking habits or Mm -hmm. whatever how much they curse totally i mean it's also i think this was one reason why maybe some people didn't like it is that it does feel a little a little basic perhaps and it's sort of uh the ideas it presents about like the internet and online viewership and it's just sort of like oh like you as the viewer are sort of implicated in these these dangerous things that happen online and like maybe if you just all logged off, like they wouldn't do it and they wouldn't put themselves in harm's way. Mm -hmm. Or they're only doing it because of this army of watchers. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think that the movie is so thoroughly engaged with just like multimedia and digital like screen experience that it's not really like a negative movie. You know, it's not really like condemning the internet because it pulls its aesthetic from the internet. (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like also, I mean, the movie, there's obviously, like, this kind of, like, laughable dichotomy that you click in the app where there's two roles you could take, either watching or broadcasting and doing these stunts and dares for money, Mm -hmm. Um, which we talked about a little bit with Rob, but I feel like the that kind of presents this, like, tech dualism, not exactly like... yeah you know, there's real life and then there's the internet and you on the internet is not the real you. It doesn't get into that kind of old and, you know, kind of tired argument, but I feel like 
the movie is like pretty engaged with you know you as a person and how you present on different Mm -hmm. things whether that's through clothing whether that's through your gamer tag whether that's through you know what you post on the internet um but not that one exactly is more more legitimate or more valued or Mm -hmm. more authentic than the other but i feel like that's funny when you also have a movie where it's just you get on the internet and you choose which role you would like to be i feel like it kind of contradicts that or or maybe raises that and then presents as a way of using the internet that is not so cordoned off to putting on my watching hat putting on my my shooting a gun hat i think there's a tension maybe in just like the literal plot of the movie and then sort of all the architecture around it just like you see like these characters who are um like basically hackers you know like underground (laughs) internet users um who have sort of come to define themselves through their 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 usage of the internet in a way that sort of disrupts the sort of clear-cut binary um of not just viewer and and performer or whatever or watcher and creator but also this binary of being logged on and logged off you know like that's presented clearly in the plot but as we see throughout the rest of the movie just digital technology is just like constantly intermediated and woven into contemporary life so Mm -hmm. i think that maybe that's kind of a a a useful segue into the rest of their filmography because i think that's just like ultimately when you go through most of their movies that's just sort of the juiced shulman project is just like truly formally like creating a cinematic language from that intermediation of contemporary life Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i feel like this gets at their kind of their first feature which is catfish yeah, um, which I feel like is a movie, you know, it's this documentary, slightly infamous for maybe some some muddied like authenticity of of what it's about. But I feel like the way it presents a lot of this stuff and the way that it tells the story about Ariel's brother Neve, who you may know from the show Catfish, which mm-hmm. is based on the movie and an offspring from the movie, and the movie's actually like part of his role on the show. You know, it's a documentary about him developing this online relationship and then the two filmmakers who all work together with him in the same office start recording the whole thing and they just have these little pocket digital cameras point and shoots kind of flip camcorder style is mm-hmm. that era as well at the, kind of the beginning of big vlogging and that like being a career aspiration um yeah which i think also speaks to how this movie is was made because if this was made today it would be by a vlogger or a series of TikToks documenting the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's just that type of like content delivery system for this type of authentic feeling internet content was not set up yet. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about this movie is that it is like like we've said of basically every hyper digital kind of movie like this is that it's really sort of a time capsule and an artifact now. And one of the things that's very striking about it is how contained it is to Facebook and how like narrowly sort of Facebook is partitioned off from like the rest of the internet. And I think that now at this point, 
if you were to develop this kind of relationship, you know, this online relationship, you would probably most likely, I mean, obviously people get catfished, like it happens, but I think it would be the person in the movie that Neve develops a relationship with. She is catfishing him, not from just one account from, but from this whole like ecosystem of fake accounts and fake people and relationships that she's constructed to Mm. create the illusion of like this person being known and being real and that just like wouldn't be kind of feasible because I feel like now Neve would like look beyond just Facebook and would be like, does this person have a Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera, presence, mm-hmm. you know, trying to track them down on other corners of the internet. Um, so it's kind of very interesting, just interesting retrospectively to see that sort of like subdivision of online experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, always interesting to see the ways Facebook was used and kind of valued in, in previous eras. Cause I don't know, I feel like totally. you walk out of your house and a, a newspaper blows up on your foot and catches on your shoe with some story about Facebook talking to a lawmaker or something like that, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, before Facebook was this like... I mean, you know, the movie came out the same year as The Social Network. I think it's, like, very telling. And you watch that movie now, and, like, I think it's a great film, but it does feel like it's just the very tip of the iceberg of, like, what Facebook has represented in modern culture. Uh, So much has kind of changed in the past decade. And so it is interesting with Catfish, too, to see it just be, like, not thought of as this, like, monolithic sort of extra legal force, but Mm -hmm. this just like platform for kind of casual intimacies. Um, And that's, what's really striking to me about catfish just in general, real quick is just like, it's all about kind of facilitating intimacy. I think it's also, I mean, it's a movie that I think is also about the way people use Facebook to lie, not to get like hashtag political or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. I think in the same way that the social network is one that kind of, I mean, employs these kind of like grand and epic like emotions and arcs and kind of more like classical story structure to this modern tech bro fable or whatever. And kind of, you know, turning it up points into something like, you know, like a Greek tragedy or something like that. With these big screenwriter virtues from Aaron Sorkin of, like, revenge and tragedy and betrayal Mm -hmm. and all these things. Uh, But, I mean, that's a movie that you watch and over time you just kind of see more and more in it that you had not before. Or you just, like, find more, like, just, I don't know, real life emotions that you're like, oh this guy kind of sucks. Of course, Mark Zuckerberg sucks. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was made before people hated Mark Zuckerberg beyond him yeah. just being a, yeah. a loser. <laughs> but I feel like this is also a movie that kind of like shows not that this was new. People have always kind of manipulated the internet and manipulated presentations on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but as like the internet has kind of been reinvented a couple of times and people try to like use it and, and have like a source of like verifiable, legitimate interactions and stuff like that and facebook kind of wants itself to be like the passport to the globe and probably wants online voting to happen on facebook one day that can be verified with your facebook account and all that Mm -hmm. stuff i i feel like the movie is also about how how that kind of can't be trusted in the early days before parents were on facebook you know yeah but i mean you know it's a movie that 
a lot of people raise concerns about the legitimacy of what actually happens in it. The motivations of these, you know, white dudes with movie cameras to start recording this whole thing. Mm-hmm. How, like, earnest the actual, like, motivations to start recording were and how much were exploitative when maybe they saw that this was weird and decided to start recording what happened, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, to me, I, I feel like the authenticity is less important than the way it uses this very embodied digital texture and, like, uh, the it, it's very much about, like, the texture of the screen. Um, yeah. Not just visually, but also the way that sometimes the screen creates a, like, a filter that um, can never truly convey a full person mm-hmm. and the way that that changes the connections that authentic or not happen through it. I mean, I think that's the thing about the issue of authenticity with this movie is that the movie itself is about authenticity. So yeah. I don't mind that it like kind of fudges those lines in, in what it presents to the viewer because mm-hmm. I mean it in itself is also catfishing. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, and that's the thing is like, what's I think the significance of this movie culturally it was it's just like it's very interesting how it sort of gave this new vocabulary to an existing phenomenon and obviously like the idea of presenting a false self or false version of yourself or or a different version of yourself online is something that you know has has been an idea that had been explored prior to 2010, but just sort of framing it in this new way, giving it this new terminology. But it's very interesting. I hadn't seen the movie, you know, I remembered it from being a phenomenon and I had watched the show some, Mm -hmm. but in the movie, the term catfish, the way it's presented is kind of different from like, I feel like how the term is defined in colloquial use in society. Like, because you have the husband of the woman that Neve is talking to. Yeah, the titular does, catfish. Yeah, he he sort of tells this anecdote, and it's sort of, at least to me watching it, it was not exactly clear like what prompts this. Yeah, um, and also it's just like it's just like dropped in there. Yeah, in this way that reminds me. I mean, this movie, as we talked about, is kind of like just is very prescient of things that were to come in terms of like online video personality video content from like an amateur angle all these things but also i feel like it's very predictive of like straight to streaming documentary because that's what this would have been yeah if it were made any later and also like vox investigative type videos where you just drop this like very pithy sounding thing over slow motion video and maybe like some soft piano notes and mm-hmm this is just this is the way these premium podcasts and documentaries are made. Yeah, I mean, Catfish was really the uh, the serial of its time. But yeah, I mean, he tells this anecdote of when he was fishing, right? Like in Alaska, correct? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. He just talks about how they were fishing for like cod, right? I don't know if some fish you get yeah. in Alaska. I'm going to say cod. Whenever the captured fish would reach their destination very far away, they just would basically their, their flesh would have atrophied or started softening mm-hmm. from a lack of activity. And that a catfish would get dropped into the tank after they started receiving complaints and lower business from this like low quality Mm -hmm. cod flesh that they were trying to sell and the catfish would like agitate them and get them excited and keep them swimming around and keep them essentially fit 
and and have better product for people to eat and this is like the creation of the term catfish but also is like how he describes like his wife who is the catfish and she's just you know just the the person the thing in the water you know yeah his meaning is that like oh you have catfish in your life who are like the people who keep you on your toes who are unpredictable but to me i'd always been like oh it's catfishing because like catfish is like deceive yeah they have they have whiskers but they're not cats you know yeah or something i don't know i don't know if i'd ever really thought that hard but i thought it had something to do with like fishing and like deception and like or like deceiving a catfish into like with a lure or something like i don't know or like noodling like yeah or (laughs) sticking your arm in a hole in the ground to get a catfish out um but i don't know it's just kind of weird because it doesn't feel like quite what the i don't know it just feels like very different from what the term has become yeah like but also i mean the the movie is very different from the show where i feel like the term got much more popularized um because the movie i mean is very unexpected when you know just like what the term means in a modern context but also watching it, it is just this very bizarre collection of scenes and moments, which mm-hmm. I guess probably also with, along with like kind of the low quality images of these handheld cameras and stuff probably lend it, lends itself to some authentic, authentic like feeling to everything, but also mm-hmm. kind of makes it this like humanistic kind of collage, especially when you get to the end and you start meeting the real person who was catfishing Neve the whole time. I feel like they put a lot of work into like selling this person's story and making you feel bad instead of like the show's reality kind of presentation of these people. as just like monsters and just the worst people imaginable. Yeah. No, it's like the show is all Neve kind of being like, oh, I went through this horrible experience, like, and I'm here to save other people from going through the same kind of trauma, or I'm here to, like, bring them the truth so they can move on and be happy and with their lives or whatever. And I, it's just, like, I, it tries to replicate a lot of that sort of, like, multi-camera, low-quality texture of the film. Like, you have Neve's co-host Max Joseph, like constantly like filming everything that's on a desktop screen like if they're skyping yeah. with the person they're going to be working with like he's constantly filming with the camcorder and it's just like very absurd well it's just it's his whole role is literally just be like the guy who looks like you're on the production crew <laughs> yeah. just i feel like it's like i don't know but it's weird because they also have like cameramen who aren't on screen holding a camera yeah. who are most of the time recording the images of the show. They just every once in a while right. cut to this very absurd, like, handy cam close-up, like, shoving it right in someone's face, you know? Yeah, and I don't know. It makes sense because, like, Justin Schulman as filmmakers, like, they met at NYU, and Neve was, like, a professional photographer, and they all just have such, like, video bro kind of video production <laughs> energy. Oh, yeah, they're totally just, especially in promotion of the the movie catfish they're just like oh i got this camera in my pocket all the time Mm -hmm. you know and i feel like that's how they were trying to sell the truth of it but also and you know telling the story of starting to record your own brother as he had this weird relationship and stuff but they did have like big like kind of vlogging just like oh i just carry this thing everywhere you never know what you're gonna find out in the world you don't want to miss a thing yeah it's very much that kind of writing that 
web 2.0 energy of like, whoa, like anybody can upload anything now. Like, isn't this incredible? Mm -hmm. Upload my dreams. But, uh, yeah. Download success. It's it, the movie has a much more sort of nuanced perspective about it than the show does, which is like, you know, in the mode of sort of intentionally exploitative, like reality television, you know, it has a sort of like, uh, I, a very kind of like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some like investigative like reality show, but it has sort of like... Oh, to Catch a Predator? Yeah, it has shades of that or like something that would be on TLC or A&E or something, um, mm -hmm. even though it's on MTV. The only other real thing I have to say about this movie, though, is that it was originally marketed as like a next paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. Very cheaply produced. Limited release. Yeah, and I mean, when the movie premiered at Sundance, people were like, oh, this is a pretty good documentary and pretty unique, but it's going to be really tough to, like, market. And, like, the marketing campaign was just, like, convincing people they were going to, like, shit themselves. They were mm -hmm. so scared. Yeah. And, like, not revealing what the catfish actually was. I feel like that's part of the reason, like, catfish even got used is that it's just... I think they're, they're like, trying to go first. It's like if Citizen Kane was called Rosebud. <laughs> I feel like yeah, yeah, yeah. They really this, like, totally unrelated thing until at the very end you're like, oh, I guess that's important. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember thinking back to like when the movie came out, the promotional campaign was really reliant on the like twist element of it and like not knowing who would be behind you know these photographs and this Facebook profile, um, and I felt like it was very much kind of word of mouth through Facebook. Also, apparently it received a wider release by Paramount after being endorsed by uh, problematic Brett Ratner, <laughs> um, which I, you know, there's kind of a, a little bit of problematic stuff that follows catfish just with like Neve. Yeah. I mean, preceding catfish Neve like got expelled from college for punching a woman and he was his justification was that he thought it was a man god yeah and he was like accused of uh some sexual harassment or misconduct and was cleared of it but i don't i don't know he still seems like a sus guy to me and there's also that infamous tweet of him in the elevator yeah this elevator like, is I'll, abuse I'll free respect here yeah but also, I mean, now he's, like, trying to pivot hard toward this, like, human rights advocate yeah. type of, like, celebrity status and tries to, like, leverage that I'm, I'm a helping, I'm helping people. Yeah, which was kind of, I think, almost how he was sort of positing Catfish as this, like, humanitarian service to the people who have been catfished. You know, the guy yeah. uh, from Tennessee who thought that he was in a relationship with Katy Perry. Yeah, that's a, that's a piece of local legend. Right <laughs> yeah. There. Um, one, my one last aside about catfish though, is kind of an extended, uh, juice Schulman universe. Um, the movie, we are your friends, which is directed by catfish co-host Max Joseph and feels very much a piece with the juice Schulman movies. Um, cause if you're not familiar with it, it's about Zac Efron's attempt to become an EDM DJ, sort of a, social media influencer version of Saturday Night Fever mixed with the Wolf of Wall Street. And I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it has, it, it's not quite the same kind of digital collage that get, they go for, but it has shades of that. And it also the romantic lead 
co-lead is Emily Ratajkowski, actress and model and influencer who has now kind of like, I feel like she's made a sort of like side career almost as a like public intellectual with sort of like essays and stuff, like reflecting on her image and like being a sort of image and object that's like consumed by audiences and viewers, um, which is just sort of like an interesting kind of parallel to a lot of what comes up in Justin Schulman's work. It's interesting also that the first movie was kind of marketed as the next paranormal activity because the next two movies that they made were the third and fourth movies in that franchise, uh, which I've only seen the fourth one. You saw the third as well. Yeah, I watched both of them, and as you said, the sort of marketing of those movies were were somewhat similar in that they were presented as these kind of digital grassroots campaigns. It wasn't quite the same with Catfish, where like Paranormal Activity had like it it used the site Eventful, where like people could request mm-hmm. screenings, and it was sort of like vote on the next city for this. Yeah. And, you know, they really hit like with the audience reactions and the trailers and being a found footage movie and obviously the kind of texture and imagery of catfish, like it makes total sense um, why they would get them. But it's very weird because Paranormal Activity 3 is a prequel that's set in the 1980s and um, it's got the infamous oscillating fan camera which is like the high point of the movie really interesting Mm. touch which is parodied in the comedy a haunted house um the with the wayans brothers paranormal activity parody uh which i also (laughs) watched recently um but it's it's weird that they got these just like such digital native and millennial filmmakers to do a movie set in the 80s because they do not really try to make it look was it like uh, like video core or was it more like, I mean, it's, it, it, there are elements of that and you think it would be because like, it's about the sort of, uh, the, the woman and sister from the first two paranormal activity movies as children and their stepfather is a like wedding videographer and he's like a video geek and has all these monitors and cameras and stuff in his garage and he starts filming and there are at like the beginning of the movie there's sort of prologue of some clips from the first two paranormal activity movies just recounting what's happened and then it cuts to the 80s and it opens with some like footage of a party that has a sort of filter on it to make it look like like videotape and then after that the rest of the movie does not even try to pretend to look like it's shot on video. Like it's straight up digital widescreen crisp as can be with the production designing and, and costuming. They hardly even try to make it look like the eighties too. Like they're just very disinterested in the sort of using the period and using analog technology, um, which was disappointing, but it also makes total sense just given the rest of their, their films. Like it's just doesn't seem like subject matter that is really interesting to them. Um, but I'm glad that they stayed on for the fourth movie because it's it's like honestly maybe the high point of the series for me and like uh, there's some pretty interesting stuff going on with that one. I yeah, would say. the fourth one I've only seen the second and the the fourth, but what a viber, you know? Yeah, I think the fourth one stands alone almost from the other movies because it's about like a different family. 
and has a sort of separation from the other movies, which I kind of liked because I felt like with the third one, the sort of mythology of the franchise was starting to cave in on itself a little bit. And so it's like nice to just be with like different people and it's just, it's a different experience, but it's also like very different. I feel like structurally from the other paranormal activity movies. You may be able to say more to this, but I feel like this one is much more interested in machine sight than any of the other mm-hmm. paranormal activities. Like the second movie is motivated by jealousy of a partner installing all these cameras. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's like to the fourth one, there's like a medium specificity almost that the other ones don't have. And it's something that almost sets paranormal activity for apart from like the rest of the found footage subgenre almost because with a found footage movie, you always have the issue of like intention, you know, because you always have to explain why is this person recording so much footage? Why do they have a camera around this whole time? You know, like what's the deal here? What's going on? And a lot of times I think the kind of classic trope that you see in like the Blair Witch Project and you see in the first paranormal activity with the boyfriend character, Mika, who's this kind of just like jealous, awful, toxic finance bro who's like really into camera tech and technology and, and stuff. And he's, you know, kind of a gearhead. It's this like issue of obsession where like they can't deal with reality. So they're filtering everything through a camera. They can't stop filming. And with Mika and paranormal activity, it almost feels like this sort of means of controlling his girlfriend. Cause they, there's this like tension in their relationship and he's often kind of condescending to her. And so this constant surveillance almost feels like a means of controlling her. And that's different than what you get in paranormal activity Four, which is like constant surveillance. You know, you have, um, handheld cameras, you have, now sort of a proto screen life touch of desktop webcams um which are just sort of filming all the time indefinitely and then you have the xbox connect camera um Mm -hmm. which allows for like something much more natural i think than a lot of other found footage movies because the explanation is these cameras are literally on all the time and that's just how the machines work. And so characters forget about them and don't realize that they're on. So things can just sort of unfold and happen in the frame. And you're not concerned with like the reality of it or why the camera's running. I mean, with this one, there is like a personal motivation for having the cameras on and everything with, you know, something's happening in the mm-hmm. house overnight. And we want to be able to, to see like who's doing it or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I feel like especially like the the obvious thing is like the connect is it uses this it it creates this really cool effect i mean i think it's it's great i mean i've used the connect like for the the effect that it's used for here a couple of times for like 3d scanning but what they do is that they take the connect and 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 film a night vision footage of the infrared beams going out all over this living room Mm -hmm. which the movie doesn't do a whole lot of interrogation with like this thing is just on all night you know this thing's just on all the damn time Mm -hmm. where is this data going and of course i mean this movie kind of came out before the xbox one was like premiered and people were like you're gonna keep this console online all the time and you want me to use this connect with voice commands so you want a microphone on in my house all the time i mean people were really mad about this when it came out and now 
people kind of welcome these devices into their homes a bit because the digital like home receiving like content system is now kind of like normal and also like edward snowden mm-hmm. is not as like fresh of a public figure um yeah i feel like a lot of people have were, were kind of mad at the time for that reason but so i mean the movie has this like connect infrared beam vision on at night um that creates a really cool look but is also like just filming how the machine sees mm-hmm. stuff and using that machine sight to reveal things yeah i mean i think the movie draws a sort of parallel between like haunting and the sort of constancy of knowing that there may or may not be a, a malevolent demonic presence in your home with the like constancy of surveillance of these kind of devices. And yeah, I mean, it's something now I feel like it's like so absorbed into just like cultural consciousness that just like, you know, Amazon echoes and all of these devices are just always listening and, and always potentially capturing, um, information. And, and so this is the, the, I don't know. It's like, I am not, I feel like really seen that integrated into a, found footage movie in this sort of way where it really mm-hmm. feels like to bring out a hot box buzzword, the panopticon, you know, that is kind of the feeling I get from how this movie is filmed and, and constructed together though. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, their movies are definitely about not just like the internet and computers, but about like, well, you know, what it's like to use one of those things and about, I mean, in the same way that some of like the Dogma 95 movies were, but they're about like the object, like the tactility Mm -hmm. and like the objectness of the machines used to like make it. And Catfish is is a little bit about that where they're passing this camera back and forth and shoving this camera in all these places. And it's kind of used to create this feeling of authenticity and feeling like you're just hanging out with these dudes who are on their laptop, Mm -hmm. you know? But this one, I mean, yeah, it's about, I feel like the, the objects used to, to capture all this stuff, like another one of these really interesting like camera formats they use, like you mentioned is a laptop webcam and they have this laptop recording in the kitchen and that's how they get footage of that Mm -hmm. overnight. And while it's recording, the mom in this house is like making dinner one night and she's watching a YouTube tutorial for this meal on the laptop that's recording her. So it's just, you basically get this close up of her cutting board and like, you know, kind of the bottom and middle of her torso as she's just cutting up vegetables for dinner. And so it's, it's about, or, you know, it's not a screen life movie, but it's a movie that I think, in addition to their other movies, is not just about the, like, computer screen being the main place you should be looking and getting all your information, but about sometimes those computer screens are, you know, ancillary to an activity or an accessory mm-hmm. to it uh, to get something done, but it's not the main focus. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing as opposed to the screen life genre. It's sort of reverse where you're not getting like the flat desktop view. You're like looking out from the computer itself. So when like the main girl in the movie is Skyping with her boyfriend, you like hear his audio. You're ostensibly kind of his perspective almost, I guess, uh, looking at her. But you hear his audio basically coming out from her computer, um, which is the same with the cooking show that you hear from the computer speakers. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just like you have that like real, like you were saying, that like objectness of all of these various cameras. 
which I think connects to catfish in a way because catfish is all about this sort of like, can you trust this information you're given, this perspective that you're given and the various cameras in the paranormal activity movies, you know, they can be compromised, you know, they can be knocked out of the way or obstructed or, or whatever Mm -hmm. in some way. Um, so you're not always getting this like omniscient, all knowing perspective, some real, real C for catfish energy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but also I feel like if we're talking about some of like, again, the groundwork, they kind of lay for like future digital image, formats and genres and stuff i feel like another part of the screen life movie that kind of comes up here is like every one of these movies or i guess not these but screen life movies have like this like obnoxious tech dude who's just like a video who has to explain yeah who explains how all the cameras are there what they're really used for and just explaining why the movie is being filmed with this object and of course he has all this stuff but also I feel like with this one it does it does get at some of the like multiple reasons for some of these objects to exist and how mm-hmm. sometimes this the footage that is being captured from these things when they're just like ambiently like they're resting they're not fully turned on but they're still taking in images and transmitting them you know where where those are going um I feel like in kind of engaging with that it also like lays out how this like character archetype of like the you know the gear dude the tech geek is oftentimes someone who like welcomes in these cool and nifty gadgets into their home and will sometimes Mm -hmm. just use it for an opportunity like just welcoming surveillance into their home but then using it as an opportunity to to be really smart and be able to talk about how it's actually bad yeah i mean i think that there's a sort of general uh, gesturing towards like particular consumptive behaviors and Juiced and Schulman's work where they're very interested in like sort of bourgeois suburban aesthetics basically, which I mean is like kind of a defining feature of the paranormal activity movies in general. I mean, they're all in like the most bland suburban homes imaginable. I mean, they're people who are pretty well to do. They have a lot of objects. Obviously they can afford all these cameras, video game consoles and computers and stuff. But they're just these like, you know, I don't know, these just like very blank, all American white households. And uh, I feel like in the the first Paranormal Activity movie coming right after the financial crisis, it's really interesting because the, the, the home does kind of feel like beyond the means of the couple who live in it. Like the woman is a student. The man is like this work at home day trader or some shit. And he's just kind of like, well, yeah, I'm just doing my stocks on numbers on my computer on E-Trade. Their house is just kind of like sparse and, and, you know, has this kind of arid, airy suburban drafty feeling. And it almost feels like the ghosts are like the ghosts of the financial crisis, like coming to foreclose on their house or something, you know, like, Um, So I feel like you have that kind of spirit lingering throughout these movies. Um, And I feel like a lot of times Joost and Schulman are just like very interested in the kind of the sort of consumptive habits that inform like suburban culture 
I think you see this a lot in their movie Viral, which despite its title is not at all about like viral internet culture. Kind of pissed. This is like, this is 2016. I feel like this is the thing that people imagine when they hear viral. Literally. Yeah, I know. And I think it's almost kind of them being like, fuck you. Like you think we only do online shit. Like, no, we're going to do something firmly off the grid. But that movie is just like, it's not about the internet. In fact, the Wi-Fi is down for most of the movie. Um, and it's much more about just like teen suburban experience. And I think maybe it's asking like what's left of of like mil- millennial, Zoomer, suburban experience when you like take the internet away. Like what's left in just like these sort of empty houses that have no connection anymore that are just sort of objects that are empty and devoid of meaning now um i don't know this movie is most interesting maybe as like a weird kind of like predictor of covid because it's about a virus that called the worm flu that originates in china and everybody's like oh it's not gonna come here and then it comes to the u.s and there's a quarantine and um, Machine Gun Kelly makes like racist jokes about how it originated in China. There's like all these conspiracy theories abounding. Um, a main character goes to like a quarantine lockdown party and she's the only one wearing a mask. There is one thing though that differs and that's that the government gives everybody masks and uh, like military MREs and medicine and stuff, which we have not seen. So uh, it's maybe a little bit science fiction, um, but I don't know. It, it really kind of had some crazy moments of, of body horror and is sort of about like, I don't know, teens like losing their identity to just like conformity or whatever kind of tropes of teen movies you want. I don't know. It reminded me a lot of like uh, Abel Ferrara's version of Body Snatchers, which is very much about like American conformity um, and... I just talked a lot. I mean, I haven't seen it. I I was interested in watching it, but then looking at the yeah. ones that I hadn't seen, I was like, this seems like more of a minor, minor one. It definitely is, but it does, I think, just kind of like suggest to me that like, oh, they, you know, they have some kind of just straight up chops as filmmakers. Like they can make a just regular movie, basically, uh, that doesn't. Uh, sort of use all of these different kind of textures and perspectives that's just kind of like a thriller and that is very um, straight up and it honestly it has some kind of beautiful images in it Um, and I was I was taken aback uh, for the most part but it is just like very aligned with I think there's a very I mean obviously Catfish became an MTV show um, and there is that sort of just like teen culture uh, aesthetic to a lot of their work, which is, I guess, what really aligns it with viral. Without phones there, but with, I feel like this could maybe, I mean, do you think it maybe does any kind of like comparisons between this like virus and rather than having like thoughts and actions and trends spreading on the internet, does it Mm-hmm. Do you feel like in like looking at teen activities without phones, but with maybe a virus instead, are there any kind of, you know, parallels or anything like that that you see there? Cause ultimately what they are is peer pressure filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess they are sort of like particularly in catfish, but just by being filmmakers by default who are often looking at teens, you know, which is a time when you're really 
sort of reflecting on yourself and forming your identity. I think, you know, they are really interested in these issues of like identity and self and like how you become yourself and how you differentiate yourself from everybody around you. And so I think that um, viral is about like the virus is basically spread through... I don't know. I guess it's in some ways it's kind of a throwback to like seventies movies, like the crazies or something like that, where there is this kind of like fear of this sort of like blank anonymous collective because everybody's body gets taken over by this like worm. And then all the worms connect together and are like feeding each other and shit like that. So it, it is something where it's maybe like that kind of casually regressive horror trope of like the individual versus the mass and it's like saying like yeah like you know be yourself don't lose yourself but i don't know i think just kind of across with or without the technology there's a, a focus in like in that interest in self which i guess i think also sort of shows up in their movie from this year project power uh which is like you know their attempt at a maybe franchise starting superhero deal and i think that you know superhero movies are sort of inherently about like identity in a way and like a change happens to someone and they're trying to wrestle and reconcile with that um so i think that's maybe contained in that movie but project power is like pretty weird in a lot of ways yeah i mean it i like watch this interview with the screenwriter at one point the this interviewer was like so what's like you know where did the idea come from and he was talking about like some original like superhero ideas and you know then thinking about other genres of movies that he liked and like what would it be like if you just drop superpowers in them and then ultimately what he landed on is like an inspiration point and kind of the outset or the, like the goal of the movie was eight mile meets collateral with superheroes between them but also i mean justin shulman talked about in terms of like inspiration for the images of the movie being like michael mann's like early digital period also saying like collateral Mm -hmm. and and miami vice both of which had jamie fox in them and so does this that makes a lot of sense and also when you sent me that quote about eight mile meets collateral with superpowers i was like this also makes a lot of sense because it really does feel like movies sort of different movies cobbled and mashed together Mm -hmm. like there's one part of it that is like an inspirational sundance indie drama about this young girl in new orleans you know who wants to be a rapper and she's trying to keep it together for her family and there's so many like adult men who are like oh yeah well you know let's hear it give me something and then she's like spitting some really like slam poetry deep bars one of them is like her like white english teacher (laughs) he's like oh yeah she has this like fantasy of like freestyling at the teacher and like doing a mic drop on him yeah um and it's like i don't know it's very weird because it's like what do these nyu video bros know about like like being a black person and like post katrina new orleans and it's a little like I don't know, a little side eye maybe. Mm-hmm. But then the other half of the movie is a kind of like late 2000s, like young adult 
original superhero movie like Push or like I Am Number Four or something like that or like Hancock even. Yeah, it it definitely reminds me of like that first like rebellion against like the turn of the millennium superhero movie formation, that kind of anti-superhero movie where it's like these people aren't perfect. These aren't Hollywood stories. Um, I don't know. You also have things like Chronicle, which I think gets at some yeah, of the, totally. you know, not to, not to talk about Max Landis for too long, but I feel like it does get at some of the digital textures that, that we're talking about with Catfish, especially with Dane DeHaan getting these powers and then, mm-hmm. and then, you know, carrying this camera around with him, just like floating around kind of like a video game camera, but it has it where he just has superpowers and has this like camera floating behind him at all times, you know, and then filming him. Uh, but it reminds me of that kind of rebellion against the the superhero movie and bringing in some of that kind of indie dramedy, you know, uh, flavor bringing in the like real life grit or whatever, which this movie is like wildly swings between that. And then like these really intense stylized effect sequences, which I think is like their furthest foray into that kind of thing into like really like actual kind of visual effects filmmaking. Like, I don't know. I feel like, up to this point, even something like Nerve has a sort of has a sort of like gorilla quality to it, which is with like the different formats and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this feels like, you know, they're trying to sort of level up into a new territory of filmmaker. Yeah. And with that that video game term you just mentioned, I'll spread my my theory that this movie was only made because they them and the screenwriter both were mm-hmm. were already slated and in pre-production on the Mega Man movie adaptation but i believe that when disney bought fox and this was kind of that movie was probably like put in a little bit of limbo yeah um i'd think that all of their their superpower essentially effects for the villains in Mega Man um, were just repackaged into this movie, and I feel like that gives it some of this cobblestone texture. Mm-hmm. But also that that Mega Man thing only bears mentioning one more time, just because when Jamie Fox goes and fights Machine Gun Kelly in his apartment. <laughs> Just an incredible sentence. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great scene as well. He goes to his apartment and he's hunting out Machine Gun Kelly who's selling these pills that are just called power. And depending on your body's biology, you get a certain power from like the animal kingdom or something. (laughs) But Machine Gun Kelly has these like fire powers and they're, you know, it's basically a boss battle. It's very video gamey and a lot Mm -hmm. of like the feeling and stuff, but, um, he has these fire powers and Jamie Foxx fights him. And in his apartment, there's like an NES emulator playing a Mega Man game. I don't know which one, but he's at the Fireman world. I don't really, I don't, I don't know which Mega Man game it is. Cause I'm not a nerd, but <laughs> <laughs> I think there's also like, even though it is uh, different in some ways from their earlier work, there is a connection because Casey Neistat shows up again. Um, mm-hmm in an extended cameo and i don't know this got me thinking a little bit first off i want to share uh a little bit of an anecdote about casey neistat um one of my roommates actually had an internship in an office that was like above casey neistat's office and 
he sent me a picture once of Casey Neistat's door, which had like all of these crazy locks and security cameras all over it. And then a big sign that just said, no. Wow. <laughs> He's got places to be on his battery powered skateboard. He's he's looking out. He's got eyes out there. Yeah. Um, but I was also thinking about uh, the fact that you know he has Casey Neistat, obviously big big time YouTube guy. Mm-hmm. He has this now kind of long running relationship with Justin Schulman, but he's also been a recurring collaborator with another New York filmmaking duo, the Safdie Brothers. Um, he was a producer on their debut feature, Daddy Long Legs, and worked on some video projects before that with them and it got me kind of thinking because i feel like honestly in some ways those filmmakers have like similar energies yeah um they're both these like kind of millennial bros the the safties are literal bros i guess but Mm -hmm. it's just the safties are like 16 millimeter bros and justin schulman are like video digital gearheads yeah and i feel like also a little bit of a difference is that uh the safties seem like people who like went through like a very like formal NYU like film education and Justin Schulman seem I don't even know if they actually finished. They did though. They did though. They went to oh, NYU. I thought they uh did not graduate. I mean maybe they didn't graduate but I know they went to NYU at least. Never mind then. Another point of connection actually between those two alongside Casey Neistat is a uh, social media uh personality the fat Jewish he was also oh yeah yeah he's in uncut gems but he was also the tattoo oh, artist right. giving Emma Watson that tattoo and oh, nerve damn and in the same universe I mean it would make so much sense to me if Julia Fox showed up in a Juiced and Schulman movie mm-hmm. but I think this also kind of puts them in the realm of like Sean Baker casting yeah, off of Instagram sure. and stuff you know now making this movie with Bella Thorne on OnlyFans mm-hmm. and the re- you know Sean Baker being part of the reason that people who make content on OnlyFans now have a harder time getting their money. Yeah, no, it's interesting to see this sort of, like, connection between, like, street casting of, like, quote-unquote non-professional actors and then, like, casting off Instagram or casting off social media. Mm -hmm. But also Casey Neistat being friends with the Safties is a little bit funny to me because Casey Neistat is also someone who's so like he's has this like very intense like video dude energy where he will talk all the time about telling young people never use filters in your footage never use any filters ever because you know you're chasing after a feeling it's not authentic and you know talking about especially people using like filters that color grade to make it seem like film mm-hmm. stock and things like that but i feel like the safety brothers are also very you know very interested in like celluloid texture in a way that i mean given that they have money to actually use it totally. instead of film grading and you know just like color presets in premiere but yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting is that I think the Safties and Justin Schulman both kind of ride this really particular like line of uh, of reality and, and artificiality um, because they're they're both very interested in like the texture of the respective technologies that interest them. 
you know, celluloid film in the case of the Safties and sort of digital instruments in the case of Joost and Schulman. But obviously, like, I mean, they both started working in documentaries and they've sort of used those sort of like heightened aesthetic mediums to try to sort of investigate the bounds of like fiction and reality sometimes. Um, And even in something like, I mean, even though like a movie like Nerve is very hyper stylized it's also trying to like speak to a quote-unquote like real issue and sort of replicate how teens actually use social media and use smartphones and things like that even if it is in this kind of genre container Mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of anything else that happened in project power that is just a must mention i don't know it's real funny see joseph gordon levitt he's like this like new orleans police officer who's like wearing a jersey to work for the saints you know he's a jersey cop i feel like i have not seen him in a hot minute and he now he's trying to do a like mark Wahlberg thing almost in this movie um Mm -hmm. i guess hit record didn't work out yeah real tough guy cop who works with uh but he he's got his finger on the pulse you know he's in the community somebody press stop record on on the body career is that where you're going with that? <laughs> no, no, I was saying, like, I was playing off of fucking Joseph Gordon-Levitt's hit record website. Sorry. I was saying, my, I don't know. It's, my brain went to a very different direction <laughs> with that. Yeah, you went to a dark place. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, a lot of the, uh, you mentioned this was kind of their first foray into, like, effects-based filmmaking mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and I think a lot of the effects in this movie are pretty pretty spectacular i mean you know it's lots of like little particles in the in like tilt shift kind of photography and stuff yeah but um you know i think it's really 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 compelling there's this one part where casey neistat goes with this he has this date and he goes to this like demonstration for rich people for these power pills and they put his date in this like chamber and she takes this pill that makes her like very icy and cold mm-hmm. and have these like frozen powers. And then she gets put in this like sub zero freezing chamber mm-hmm. and she's like demonstrating these ice powers and people are like, it's just like frozen, which is interesting because I, I mean, you know, there's the obvious joke or something like that about just frozen. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. just funny. Whenever anyone talks about frozen, I always have a good time yeah. thinking about that little freak Olaf. <laughs> but also i mean the i feel like the stereotypical point to come up on this podcast is that both of those are also made exactly the same way in terms of the the images or the effects mm-hmm. of the the freezing on screen mm-hmm. it's some true shard cinema hours it really is we we uh are we juiced it out we shul shulmaned out i think so i think i went too hard on the juiced and shulman we got catfished we catfished ourselves we did into thinking that we'd just be unending unending fountains of knowledge here but i feel like also with these filmmakers there's not a whole lot of exploration of their work honestly 
No, totally. I feel like we're kind of uh, on the cutting edge, potentially. Uh, yeah. Six wave, vulgar autourism. Yeah, we're bringing it uh, back. Chapo's bringing it back. Why can't we get in there, you know? <laughs> you know, uh, we're out here reclaiming some people. And I mean, I don't know. I think, like, that's... I'm always interested in, in trying to seek out these, like, interesting studio or at least interesting sort of commercially or oriented filmmakers and and trying to fit, see who's doing interesting things with the cinematic language. Mm-hmm. Always staking out some new territory. I love, I just love a reclamation. I love to reclaim yeah. movies and be like, actually, that was good. To me, that was good. In my opinion, it's a good movie. My brain's just been deep in the screen life trenches as of late, thinking hard about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These movies and filmmakers come up pretty frequently. Just thinking about it, you know. I feel like screen life's a little bit dead if I'm being real. Wow, rest in peace. I know. I feel like people are annoyed at yeah. watching someone use a telephone and then awkwardly misspell a word and go back and everything. There was a there was the Zoom movie. Yeah, all the other ones. The Shutter exclusive. Yeah. And that's it. No more. None more. It's over. It's like vaporwave. It was a time. And then it passed. Mm-hmm. Like like vapes in the wind. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. I think uh, that that seals the deal. Yeah. Doesn't it? Um, I'd say so. Do you so. have any, any final thoughts? Uh, I don't know. Go check out some of their shorts. I like some of their short films. Some of them are real like yeah. cocky video dude shit. But I like that one where they got... Damn it. They gave Will Shorts, the New York Times crossword designer, a little handy cam and told him to play ping pong. He plays it a lot, mm-hmm. but they would he's just a real old school game freak, you know. Yeah, I I also enjoyed their like short film with L fanning where it's like L fanning holding a fan and like different some visual puns. Yeah. Which seems like something they're suited to as filmmakers. That one's kind of funny because it is just essentially just a conversation of of people riffing on L fanning different ways that could sound and different funny ways to put sentences together. And then they create those sentences visually, Mm -hmm. but it's this really expensive and very densely thought out and planned riff conversation essentially. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, that's about it. Where can people find you on the internet? You know, you know where it is at Trillmore girls on Twitter. Yeah. I just want to real quick, I don't know if the episode will be out when, or episodes, excuse me, will be out when this episode is out yet. Depends on how long it takes me to put it together. Uh, But I will be making another appearance on the Extended Clip podcast. Uh, Actually, two appearances. One on a free episode, one on a Patreon episode. So it should be a good time chatting with those boys, those those good boys. Um, What about you, Seth? Where can can you be found? You know, just just on Twitter or... uh... I was trying to think of literally anything else. Anything else? In no. the comments on Joe Rogan's episode with Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Chopping it up with the real ones. Yeah, just, I don't know. I didn't end up watching that full thing, but from the comments, I did find that 
it's not worth finishing. And Matthew McConaughey loves Jordan Peterson. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to close this tab. I watched the whole Oliver Stone interview. And first off, it seemed like Oliver Stone was like melting the entire time. Like he was just like sweating and sniffling. And then halfway through asked if he could go pee, which I feel like I've never seen somebody do that in like an extended interview or podcast before, like ask to go pee. But I guess most interviewers would edit it, but Joe Rogan won't. (laughs) He keeps it. He won't lie to you, you know? (laughs) Um, But, but the thing was, is like, he seemed very not familiar with Oliver Stone's filmography beyond platoon and jfk and also he seemed to think that oliver stone had directed scarface instead of just writing it and i mean his eyes lit up when they talked about like jfk conspiracy theories but other than that not that not that interesting not that engaging he 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 needs he needed to watch nixon you know he needed to watch some real shit he needed to watch salvador joe rogan doesn't know anything of that McConaughey Start beef interview, with us. when uh, the lone 30 minutes I've ever watched of Joe Rogan or listened or consumed any of that program, I was like, this guy is um, bad interviewing someone and making them seem interesting. <laughs> He's bad at it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but that really yeah. extended conversation was spawned off a failed joke uh, before I mentioned my Twitter where people could follow me at ASAP Sunscreen. The Twitter for the there podcast hot box the cinema it's just the title you know take out the spaces put an ad in front of it find us on soundcloud spotify apple podcasts uh and email us if you feel like it at hotboxthecinema at gmail.com or slide in the dms yeah light it up but yeah until then keep on token